Welcome to Studio 2. It's Wednesday, September 6th. According to this script in front of me, it's National Read-A-Book Day. And my name is Avi wolfman And I'm Cherry Gregg. The most recent book we read, Avi, Mm -hmm. it comes from local best-selling author Jennifer Weiner, who is joining us today to talk about her new novel, The Breakaway. She tells the story of a 33-year-old bicycle enthusiast, Abby Stern, from Philly, and her not-so-straight path on a 700-mile cycling trip. Our phone lines are open for you. Call us to talk to Jennifer. The number is 888-477-9499, or email us at studio2 at whyy.org. Also yes. on the show today, <laughs> the latest on hurricane season. Mm, no we saw the recent that. damage caused in the southeastern U.S. A new tropical storm is on the move in the Atlantic Ocean right now. We're going to get an update from New Jersey's top meteorologist, and also a preview of the Philadelphia Fringe Festival, which officially starts tomorrow. But first, some headlines. We haven't mentioned the shovel in a while, Cherry. I know. Here you go. I'm handing you the shovel. I'm digging in. And you heard us (laughs) when we had breaking news yesterday. The Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw has announced that she is resigning. Her last day is September 22nd, while her second-in-command, John Stanford, will serve as interim commissioner. Billy Penn reporter Mayor Rendy did a pretty good article outlining who John Stanford is. Mm -hmm. Stanford most recently served as Outlaw's first deputy commissioner for field operations. He's been on the Philadelphia police force for 21 years. He served as commanding officer of internal affairs, a public information officer. That's how I met him. He was a spokesperson for the department. He was also a commanding officer of the 19th police district in West Philly, and he started out in policing as a Philadelphia probation and parole officer. So literally started at the, you know, worked his way up. He has a degree in criminal justice from Penn State and a master's in organizational development from St. Joe's. He has other leadership training and he is clearly in the running, Avi, for commissioner. Permanent commissioner. uh, Permanent commissioner, but it's going to take a while. It's usually a long process. Um, And it's likely that Mayor Jim Kenney will leave the door open for whoever becomes mayor, very likely Sherelle Parker or David O, uh, to to make their decision. Um, by the way, as I mentioned, Danielle Outlaw out in just a couple weeks after a very, you know, tumultuous three and a half years. She has a new job. She'll become the deputy security chief at the New York and New Jersey Port Authority. Not much more to add. John Stanford. Either you're going to remember the name or you're going to forget it pretty quickly (laughs) because he's not going to be in this position very long. We'll find out a lot more after November, I would say. For sure. November, busy travel time, Thanksgiving, you know, people going to and fro. If you're at the Philadelphia International Airport, maybe you're imagining that you'd be stuck in a really long security Mm -hmm. line. But according to a new study released by Planet Wear... Whatever that is. We'll take it. Um, <laughs> Philly has actually got some of the quickest security clearance lines in all of the country. They studied the 31 busiest airports across the nation. Philly had the fourth shortest average wait time in security lines, nine minutes and 12 seconds. Your reaction, Cherry Greg? Go Philly. Go Philly. <laughs> Go Philly. We're doing something right. We're doing right. something right somewhere. Yeah. Um, I actually do think people... If you ask the average person to estimate how long they wait in security, they would way overestimate yeah. it. It really doesn't take that long. I can only, I, all the flights I've taken in my life, I can remember like two 
really crazy lines, but usually it's like it's pretty, moving. It's yeah. moving. It's pretty quick. And I just went on a flight. I went to a conference in August, and I remember it. it I zipped right through. I do remember it was a very pleasant experience, although my flight was delayed. And I should mention oh, that. Oh no! Uh, this is the bad news. <laughs> the bad news is that that Planet Wear also reports that Philly ranked 215 out of 357 airports when it comes to flights departing on time. A only 80 percent of our scheduled flights leave the airport on time. So there you but go. But is that our fault? Because like look, I feel like you look, have more I'm control just, over the I'm line just... part of it. Like the, the flight, <laughs> it's the airline, it's the You're weather, right. it's where the flights happen to be going. Like I feel like Philly, you can't really hold Philly accountable look for that. Look at you, look at you. Look I'm at not you a, caping up for, uh, for your I'm, for I feel Philly. like an apologist, but I just feel like one is more indicative of how the airport is being run than the other. That's just my that's just my gut, my instinct. I just you know, I'm just relaying the facts here. And I, <laughs> I but I will say that um, only Baltimore BWI uh, Airport, they had the shortest wait time, five minutes and six seconds. Okay. But good Philly's job. doing good. I'm, I'm sure. proud of Philly. <laughs> I'm proud of Philly. Um, by the way, uh, effective September 1st, if you get a new motorcycle license in Delaware or anyone that rides with that person, you have to wear a helmet and eye protection for two years after getting that endorsement or license in mm -hmm. Delaware. Delaware is working really hard to decrease the number of deaths on a motorcyclist. Mm -hmm. um, generally, helmets are not mandatory um, for those with more than two years of experience, but everyone up to 19 years of age must wear a helmet and eye protection. I should mention that uh, there have been 12 fatalities among motorcyclists this year alone, um, and Delaware saw the most fatalities in 30 years last year with 22 dying wow. on the roads. So the law is effective September 1st. Yeah. So it's in effect right now. Right now. So I don't want to see anyone out there in Delaware doing their <laughs> Dennis Hopper, Easy Rider mm -hmm. impression. Put the helmet on. Put that John Ooh, on your head. Good transition. Because it's the law. John, by the way. Um, You're getting so good at this. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, it is being added. To dictionary.com, which what, is a what? favorite website of mine. Um, they're adding the word John, which originates chiefly here in Philadelphia, as an official word in their online dictionary. What does John mean? Well, here's Quinta Brunson of Philadelphia defining it on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. So here's a Philly term, John. Yes. Is that a boy's name? No, it is not a boy's name, but it can be a boy or a girl. What's a John? Or this desk or this cup. Or no. your glasses. What a is John? John is a person, place, thing, or idea. Uh, someone call it a noun. Well, according to dictionary.com, it's an informal noun, actually. Mm. Something or someone for which the speaker does not know or does not need a specific name. That is the official definition of John. I love it. Let's use it in a sentence for our folks, okay? <laughs> Go ahead. Put some onions on those Johns. Or they'll be bland. No, that's not that? your sentence. Dictionary. That's dictionary.com. Dictionary okay. And it's going to be crazy at that John tonight. Okay. Yes. Yeah, sure. Sure. Go ahead. Or um, we're both, you know, DMV Johns. Oh, being from the Delaware. I'm oh, sorry, the DC, Maryland, Virginia <laughs> exactly. area. Got it. So Got it. I use it in different ways. There you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel like John's losing its. It's, it's luster a little bit because yeah. it started as such an authentically Philly thing. It, it sort of derives yeah. from a Philly inflected version of joint. Right. And um, was this authentically Philly thing. And now it's becoming more codified and mainstream. 
So I do wonder if people roll their eyes a little bit. Yeah. When they hear it. They're actually, it's funny this, and I think this is meant to be humorous in Jennifer Weiner's book, which we're going to discuss later Mm -hmm. today. um, The main character works at a business called Pup John in Philadelphia. And I feel, that I was feel so like, Philly. and I feel like, well, maybe we'll ask Jennifer about this. I feel like it was kind of supposed to be a little eye rolling, like, oh, yeah. Pop John, Pop of course. John, of course. By the way, check out Billy Penn's uh, article on this. They got a lot of local reactions. Looking, check that out at BillyPenn.com. So, um, another Philly thing: the Fringe Arts is bringing back its annual Fringe Festival with almost 300 performances this year. While there are fewer curated performances, as a matter of fact, there will be six of them this year. The festival almost doubled the number of acts thanks to a hub model. Here to talk about that model, but also about what you can expect for this year's Fringe Festival is WHYY's arts and culture reporter, Peter Crimmins. Peter, welcome to Studio Two. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, Peter, please Mm. remind us, for folks who may have forgotten, what is... Fringe. What makes it different from your typical arts festival? Well, I like to think of it as, it, to borrow a phrase, fast, cheap, and out of control. <laughs> that was something that I like uh, it. was that Errol Morris documentary from many years ago. Um, yeah, it's it's basically a platform that independent theater artists can can use to stage their work. Um, usually very cheaply, usually in un- unusual locations, and um, they can they can g- gather around the festival and. And, and do their work. It, it's the, the granddaddy of the mall is the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland, mm-hmm. which is enormous. It's it, um, but every most major cities have some sort of fringe festival. Even Hamilton, Hamilton, New Jersey, oh, <laughs> has a fringe has festival. a tiny little fringe festival. So um, even the fringe cities have fringe. Festivals yeah, right. It gets it's very fringy. Fringy is now a verb describing <laughs> work. Um, and uh, so yeah, and it starts uh, officially starts tomorrow. Although some have jumped the gun and actually started last weekend. So it's it's so. It's already afoot. It's already afoot as we speak. So there are fewer curated performances this year, and there's a whole new model, the hub model. Explain it. Yeah, well, the curated thing. So it's, the French Festival is put on by Fringe Arts. It's, a, it's an organization that's down, on the, uh, down there on the, on the water, on the Delaware River. And um, so they created this platform. And they also present their own shows. They're, they're, they invite artists in, and they produce the shows, and they present them. And you, normally they produce about 14, 16 shows mm. Uh, sometimes they bring them in internationally. They, they bring people in from other countries. Um, a lot of times they used to do that a lot. Um, it's, so they're, produce, they're presenting fewer shows. They're producing only six hmm. shows, uh, which is really less than half of what they were doing pre-pandemic. Um, and, and all the shows are on a slightly smaller, smaller scale. I mean, a few years ago, they brought in 45 tons of beach sand wow. into an abandoned factory up near Roxborough. To stage to create a beach to stage an opera, uh, you're not going like, to see that kind of thing. That, that's in the past. Now. That's in the past. That's okay. something they did a few years ago. You're not going to see production on that scale here. It, it's a little more toned down, and, and that's because of money. Uh, and and there's just there's the, the whole theater industry is struggling right now because mm. of the uh, effects of the pandemic. But ironically, there are more shows total, so there are more independent shows. About twice as many independent shows as there had been at the height of the fringe, about 300 shows. Um, wow. And that's in most part because they have these things called hubs. So hubs are little mini festivals within the festival. So a, a presenter will, will have a location or two, and they'll, and they'll ask artists, you can do your thing in my place, and I'll give you lights, I'll give you sound, I'll give you people at the door, and you just 
you do your work here and we'll split the ticket revenue. Hmm. Um, and so, so they're operating sort of independently of the fringe, but they're in, within the fringe. It's sort of a interesting and and like little fringe fiefdoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, much oh. like that. And and uh, so the biggest one is called Cannonball. They started three years ago. Every year they've doubled in size. So they started modestly. They had like twenty five, thirty shows. Doubled. They had over uh, sixty five the second year. This year they have hundred fifty over wow. one hundred fifty. So they've grown exponentially since they started. Three and the years shows ago. themselves must be somewhat pared down to be able to accommodate that many shows in a short period of time. Well, they well you, well the length of the show can be whatever you want. the The production value has to be shrunk down. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of an assembly line thing. I mean, one artist told me that they have fifteen minutes to set up their show before curtain, and then fifteen minutes to break it down after curtain no sand no time to sweep up the sand because the next guy's going to come up yeah. uh, you know yeah. and do the same so a lot of shows fast cheap and out of control you just you, you pump pump them out so i'm looking at this big flyer you have in front of you a booklet uh that's sort of advertising can you give us some highlights or some tips on you know trying to choose between all of these shows like what should you go to well it's it's um uh, for a lot of people, the fringe is really the only time they see theater because there's so much to do and you can walk anywhere in the city and drop into something and see it. And so uh, the, the spirit of the fringe is, is a crapshoot. You, you, you check it out. If it's good, that's great. If it's not so good, you just you, it was 10 bucks and an hour of your time. So, um, but there are some things that are of particular interest. Um, uh, John Give us Jar- one real quick. Yeah. So John Jarbo, who is a cabaret artist, a drag cabaret artist, um, uses the pronoun she. Uh, she, while in utero, she was told this later, absorbed her twin sister. Mm-hmm. So she she was a twin and the uh, biologically male, and then you had a, a, a mm-hmm. biologically female twin absorbed, or as she was told, you swallowed your sister. Whoa. And so this so this concept is the basis of a new cabaret that John is performing called Rose. You are who you eat. It sort of it explores gender fluidity it's with a, the idea that I've actually absorbed my my sister. That sounds that fringy. Sounds fringy. Yeah, yeah, I was, very fringy. You know what? I, mean, I was thinking that is that is the epitome of fringe. Right uh, there. Fringe festival. Peter Crimmins start officially starts tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us on Studio Two and getting us ready. I'm happy to be here. It's coming up. Yes. Best-selling author Jennifer Weiner is here to talk about her many novels. The latest one is The Breakaway. You can email Studio2 at whyy.org or call 888-477-9499 with questions for the author. Looking forward to talking to Jennifer. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome on back to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. We have to read a lot of books for this job, but it's a treat when reading for work doesn't feel like work. That's how I felt reading Philadelphia bestselling author Jennifer Weiner's new novel. It's called The Breakaway. I really like this book. She dealt with a lot of issues, heavy issues, love, mother-daughter relationships, abortion. But somehow the book doesn't feel heavy. Almost feels like riding a bike. I know. Free. Which, <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Right along. <laughs> Just gliding right along. That, by the way, if you hadn't already guessed, is our guest. 
Jennifer Weiner. You may have read some of her other books. There are 21 of them. They include the novels Good in Bed, In Her Shoes, which was made into a popular movie, The Summer Place, Mrs. Everything, and many more. She also wrote a memoir a few years ago, Hungry Heart. Jennifer, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much. I'm <laughs> delighted to be here. Um, as always, you've got questions for this segment. Give us a call, 888 888- Four seven seven nine four nine nine. We're throwing open the lines. You can also email studio two at whyy.org. And so, Jennifer, I'm really excited to have you here. I wanted to start by you've written quite a few books. I wanna, I wanna know what inspired the story in the breakaway. So. I started riding my bike again during the pandemic when all the gyms closed and the yoga studios closed and I couldn't do my bar class. And I, I'm one of these people that exercises for mental health as much as physical health. And I had to do something. I was kind of going crazy. And the Bicycle Club of Philadelphia was leading bike rides every single day. And so I got my bike out of the basement. It had two flat tires and it was covered in cobwebs and I dusted it off and I pumped the tires up and started riding my bike again. And what I found is that when you start riding a bike with a group of strangers I think it's the same thing like if you're on a hike or on a cruise or just anywhere with a group of people you haven't met before like things get intimate really Mm, really quickly you start hearing stories you start telling stories and I knew I I thought this is a novel like it's just waiting to happen so the protagonist Mm -hmm. um is leading one of these tours through upstate New York. Yes. And um, a great quote from the book, um, you say bike trips, any trips, were a liminal space, a kind of between place apart from the routines of work and job and waking up in the same place every morning. So the possibility of maybe breaking away from your routines, Mm -hmm. discovering something about yourself. Yes. That that has happened to you on these trips? Uh, Well, I I think everyone has had epiphanies on bike rides, and I I certainly have. Although a lot of them these days are like, why am I doing this? It's so hot. (laughs) It's so hot. But yeah, so in The Breakaway, my my protagonist is this young woman named Abby. She's in her 30s. She's at this sort of point in her life where she's got to figure out she she's never really settled on a job or a direction she's there's been a, a number of false starts and kind of graduate programs she started and hasn't finished and she lives in this apartment that's full of like half assembled ikea furniture and like the bag of clothes she's been meaning to donate for months that's sitting by the door and she's with this guy her summer camp boyfriend who loves her wants to spend the rest of his life with her and she's like 90% of the way there and so she jumps at the chance to lead this bike trip even though she's never led a bike trip before because she thinks like okay I'm gonna get some distance I'm gonna get some perspective I'm gonna figure out what to do you know with my my one wild and precious life because she really doesn't know and then this this mother with whom she has a very difficult relationship shows up on the bike trip unannounced 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 Uh. yes I mean I I think that sometimes writers um we can be a little bit evil to our characters (laughs) like you know so sometimes I find myself thinking like what is the worst thing I can do to this poor woman and clearly it was her mom showing up on this bike trip unannounced and then this guy that she hooked up with once many years ago and sort of had this electric connection and has never seen again he turns out to be there too so uh, poor abby there's there's a lot going on as the trip begins 
And that's just when it begins. Much more happens along yeah, the way. Yeah, I mean, and it's popping <clears throat> within five pages. I just want to put it out there. I'm not trying to give it all away, but it was popping by page five. Yeah. That's a beginning for you, Jen. Okay, I was reading. At, I was already. I was reading at my desk. My eyes were wide open. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. But, but I, I want to talk about the fact that you uh, deal with a lot in this book, mm-hmm. and just generally as a writer, mm-hmm. um, specifically by um, making the protagonist in this book she is a plump woman Mm -hmm. curvy Mm -hmm. um but you know in the beginning of the book i told avi this i said i want to give abby a pep talk right and be like girl you are amazing Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and then she kind of grows you see her grow throughout the book why was it so important to start her in the place where she started you know i i always want my protagonist to be relatable and i think that the idea of this woman with kind of bulletproof um with an unshakable belief in herself and her own abilities and her own beauty and her own appeal that's not someone you see a whole lot in the world I feel like it's much more common for women to have blind spots or weak spots or things they can't see about themselves. And so I knew I wanted Abby to start in a place of being a little insecure, having some doubts, wondering about herself and, you know, could she really lead this bike trip? Could she really like pedal all those miles? And, you know, this 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 adorable guy, like, is he really into her? And it, and does she deserve a guy like that? Does she deserve any kind of guy? Because her mom has really done a number on poor Abby and her self-esteem. But, you know, like you said, this is a journey. This is Mm. the story of a journey. It's a story where everybody starts one place and everybody ends up someplace else. And I think my job as an author is to take my characters from wherever they are starting and hopefully leave them someplace better and show how they got there during the course of the story. So with Abby, I wanted to show her sort of accomplishing things and doing things with this body that, you know, the world sort of tells her is kind of a marginalized body. You know, a, it's it's not the way women are supposed to look and it's not a look we associate with strength and athleticism. But she is athletic and she is strong and she comes to see that as the story progresses. At one point in the book, Abby is remembering a kiss that she had in the past um, with this this guy that that she had a relation a, a fling with, um, and she says that it gave her the same feeling she had when she learned how to ride a bike, that she was weightless, that she was flying, that she was powerful and beautiful, and nothing could ever hurt her. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about the word choice, weightless. Weightless, yeah, I. I didn't mean it necessarily to be about her body size. I I almost wanted it to be like she's she's remembering being in a place beyond a body, right? Mm. Where it like doesn't matter. You can be big, you can be small, you can be short, you can be tall, you can be anything. And you just exist more as like a spirit, I guess, less you're less tethered to your physical self because women are so tethered to their physical selves. And I mean, this was something when I started my career, lo these many years ago, you know, I was a single lady, I was not married, and I was sort of writing almost a fairy tale for myself about like a girl who looked like me who got a happy ending. 
And now I'm a mom. I have I have been saying two teenage daughters, but I actually have one who's 20, which is blowing <laughs> my mind. But like, so I have daughters, right? Yeah. And I think all the time about what the world does to women, what it does to their sense of who they are, what it does to their sense of how they look and what they need to change about themselves. Um, and then as as Cherry alluded to, reproductive freedom, reproductive justice, um, the Dobbs decision, and the fact that my daughters have fewer rights at this age than I did when I was their age, which is another thing that blows my mind. And if you are just tuning in, we are speaking with Jennifer Weiner, New York Times bestselling author about her new book titled The Breakaway. You can call us with your questions or comments for Jen at 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. You were able to balance some really heavy things. Um, and generational trauma was one of them. Um, Abby's mom um, put her in fat camp as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually like triggered me a little bit because my mom had dealt with some weight issues and she made me like, she put me on the Richard Simmons Dilla Mail. Oh no, Diet no, plan the as cards, a kid. Not you the remember cards, the cards. Of yes. She put oh, me no. on the Dilla Mail cards oh, and no. I had to run. Oh, and oh, shout oh, out oh. to my mom. Mm. Uh, I, you know, but, but she had, so mm-hmm. much trauma mm-hmm. that she went through mm-hmm. being a plus size woman growing mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. a young girl growing up. And talk about that part of it because at first you wanted to dislike Abby's mom. Yes. And then you learned about her trauma. And mm-hmm. it's just like, and everybody's trauma. Yes. It was like, all, it was other people yes. in this book and yes. I won't give it away, but mm-hmm. why was it important to talk about generational trauma? Okay. So um, the, Almond mom, that term Mm -hmm. sort of became really big during the pandemic when everybody, millennial women in particular, started talking about their mothers who were always on diets, their mothers who would count out eight almonds for a snack, and it had to be eight, couldn't be nine, couldn't be ten. And the almond moms were getting a lot of grief on social media. You know, these moms who like marched their daughters to Weight Watchers when their daughters were 10 and 11 and 12 years old or who put them on Deal-A-Meal or whatever it was, um, Adkins, all those, all that, all that good stuff. Um, and, And then, though, there was this backlash where people started saying, okay, but these almond moms come from somewhere, right? Mm. These almond moms probably had slim fast moms themselves and grew up with their own mothers dieting and criticizing their own bodies and restricting their intake and counting their calories and weighing four ounces of chicken breast and all of those things. And so Abby's mom is a complicated character because like you said, she sends Abby, she exiles Abby to fat camp when all Abby wants to do is go to drama camp and like be the lead in her junior high school Mm. show. And her mother sends her to fat camp and says, you'll thank me for this later, which is a line that kind of resonates throughout the book. Like Abby's bat mitzvah's coming up. She wants Abby to look a certain way in the pictures. And Abby's like, I don't care. I don't care how I look in the pictures. I just want to have fun. I want to have a nice summer. Um, And I am a big fan of the podcast, The Maintenance Phase. I don't know if Mm. either of you guys have heard of it, but it deals with diet culture in America, Mm. with the weight loss industry, um, with all of the, you know, late stage capitalism of it all. 
they did an episode about fat camp, right? And I was just like, I had set my alarm. I, I listened to that thing like the minute it dropped because I assumed it was going to be an indictment. I assumed it was going to be all of these people talking about, you know, young people not even being given enough calories to live on, let alone to sustain a growing body, you know, being sent on forced marches and five mile long hikes and sort of the biggest loser summer camp edition. And there was a lot of that. But what I was surprised by was how many former fat campers said, this was the happiest time of my life. This Mm. was where I had my first kiss. This was where I had my first boyfriend. This was the only place I ever felt normal and desirable. And that duality fascinated me because on the one hand, it is this terrible place that is reinforcing every terrible message about bodies and how there's something wrong with yours. But on the other hand, it's like, there were guys who wanted to hold my hand and kiss me, you know? Yeah. So that became a part of the story. And Abby's mother, it was very important for me to show that she did not emerge this way with all of these prejudices. She herself was damaged. Yeah. And I feel like in this book, there is empathy for every single character mm-hmm. you meet. And so it's a book without a true villain. And I'm wondering what type of challenge that presents for you as a writer, because a villain, I would imagine, is helpful because anyone that comes into contact with the villain, there's tension, there's sparks, there's friction. You can build off of that yes. momentum. Yes. You you omit that sort of trope from this type of writing. Is it, does it make it harder for you? I mean, yeah. It's There's, there's something very wonderful about sort of a mustache twirling, <laughs> tying the heroine to the railroad tracks like a baddie, right? But... The thing I found is that those characters can feel a little bit two-dimensional, a little bit flat, because the truth is, like, villains come from somewhere, like, and they are, you know, like, superheroes have an origin story, villains have an origin story, too. And to me, it's always a lot more interesting to try to understand, like, okay, here is a person doing terrible things. Here is a person embracing terrible messages. Here is a person telling her daughter things that no daughter should have to hear about herself. And it's really easy to just make her a baddie, right? But I always want to sort of push myself to find empathy, like you said, with these people. Why are they the way they are? Because the truth is, you know, it's that thing you see a million times a day on Facebook, you know, be kind because everyone is carrying some kind of invisible yeah. burden that you can't see where everyone has their own pain. And it's like, you know, yeah, sometimes I don't even care about your pain. I, I don't want to know about your pain. I'm thinking about my pain here. But the truth is, you know, everyone's got something. Everyone's been through something. And I think as a writer, it's much more interesting if I can sort of tease out those stories. Wonderful. We are speaking with Jennifer Weiner, author of the brand new book, The Breakaway. Call us with your comments or questions, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. We have a comment from one of our listeners. I love it. Jake from Northern Liberty asked if Jen's protagonists from all her books are all parts of herself (laughs) or are they all made up characters? Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, I, I think that 
my a lot of my protagonists there's like a big me piece in them there's usually a person in every book who's kind of at least starts out as like the stand-in for me you know like Abby was sort of how I can imagine or what I can remember of like being that age and and not quite having it all figured out and having all of these possibilities still available all the doors still open but the villains are me too I mean Mm. that's the other piece Mm. of it like I you know there's another character you meet in the breakaway who is an evangelical Christian who believes a lot of things that I do not believe especially about abortion and I really had to um you know, a novelist's job is empathy. A novelist's job is like, how do I understand this person? And so I really had to think about like, what did this person grow up believing? What did this person grow up seeing? What shaped her to become who she is, that she's now the mother to her daughter? And this daughter who you will meet in the breakaway is a teenager who Mm. is pregnant who does not want to be and who has seized on this bike trip through upstate New York as her chance to leave the red state where she lives and where she can't do anything because of parental consent laws um, and handle this situation in the only way that she wants to handle it and you see how she's made this decision you see eventually like why her mother is the way she is and and there is some of me even in those people mm-hmm. um this necessarily is among the first wave of books to be rooted in a post dobbs world pointedly so was that the goal from the outset to show what this new reality looks like for a young woman or did that sort of happen as the novel evolved in your head I think I knew as soon as the the Dobbs decision was leaked that this was going to be a part of the next book that I wrote right. because um, I think that stories are what change people's minds, honestly. And I, I think that, like, I mean, I don't want to ever... I want my books to be entertaining. I want them to be fun. I want them to be easy to read. I want them to be good company. I don't want anybody feeling like they're picking up a polemic or they're being just like beaten over the head, you know, while I'm standing on my soapbox lecturing them. But I I think that stories are how we come to understand people who aren't like us, right? Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people picking up the breakaway, reading about this pregnant teenage girl who is just desperate, it's it's going to reflect their own beliefs. They're going to understand why Morgan feels the way she feels, why they're going to support her choice. But I, I hope that there are other people who maybe don't feel that way, who are on the other side of the issue, who might read about Morgan and, and maybe understand a little bit more about the reality of what living in a post-Dobbs world means for teenage girls in states that have um, limited their choices. I have to say, when I read your book, you you come across as a feminist to me. I mean, you talk about the issue of abortion. You talk about generational trauma. You have body diversity uh, in that your protagonist is um, plus size. Um, And, um, you know, writing from a a woman's perspective. And you become sort of an activist in Mm -hmm. a way. Because Mm -hmm. could you talk about why you become an activist? Because (laughs) I I read somewhere your work has been called chunk lit. Oh, God. (laughs) 
chiclet. <laughs> Women's for- lit. Like, I forgot always- about chunklet. Oh it- my god! I cracked up oh when I heard god. chunklet. Right? I um, I think they stopped saying that probably but- because it was so revolting. <laughs> it is totally revolting, <laughs> oh but god. it made me laugh because right. I was like, "What?" Well, yeah, I know. Yeah. But you're talking about feminist. You're talking mm-hmm. about women's issues mm-hmm. in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it isn't always viewed as as I guess um, in, in a positive light uh-huh. as issues that may be written by men. Well, it's, you know, I, I think that my books get called women's fiction, right? Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as men's fiction. Like if you walk into a bookstore and say, where's the women's fiction? They will point you toward the Jodi Picoult books. They will not even take a beat. They will, there it is right over there. If you ask them where the men's fiction is, they will stare at you or they will assume that you're like playing a trick on them. And and eventually they'll just be like, well, those are just books, right? There's men's fiction. That's just fiction. Um, I I guess, you know, I, I think that the issues that I'm writing about um, bodies, relationships, mothers and daughters, romantic choices. Like mm. these are huge issues for women and, and for men. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget men. But, you know, the truth is like women buy most fiction in America. Like mm. the vast majority of fiction is purchased by women. And I I guess, um, you know, there's, I, I guess my books can be a little bit Trojan horse-like in that way. They look like fluff you know they look like I mean and that's to my publisher's credit they put very appealing covers on them they <laughs> they look like you know oh my gosh I'm gonna take this to the beach and I'm gonna kick off my flip-flops and have my sa- my toes in the sand and and then suddenly you're reading about like reproductive justice and body yes. diversity and and it's like it, I sneak up on you I sneak up on you and and I hope that maybe I have radicalized some people um in this in this very sneaky way do you think, because you've been involved, uh, as Cherry said, uh, as an activist on this issue for a while. Yes. Um, do you think you've seen movement and improvement? And if so, how? And if not, maybe how not? Well, okay. So one of the issues I have been the most vocal about is the way that women's books are treated, the way women's books are reviewed. Um, there was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a huge disparity in terms of what kind of books got reviewed and the tone that those reviews would take. I mean, I remember there's an organization called Vita, which counts every year, big newspapers, big magazines, how many books by men get reviewed, how many books by women. The first year they counted, I will never, ever forget this. The New Republic had reviewed 17 books by men and one book by a woman. Mm. And no one had a problem with that. Like, nobody had even, like, said, like, hey, do you, do you maybe think there's something wrong here? This is the New Republic. This is the New Republic, yeah. yeah. And, like, you know, the New York Times was better. They were, like, 60-40, but then other places were worse. And and then there was the issue of tone. And, like, I think about romance novels. Like, the New York Times reviewed mysteries, thrillers, horror fiction you know, spy books, science, like every genre but romance. They would not touch romance except once every year on Valentine's Day when they would mm. find some dusty white male English professor. <laughs> they would like 
pull this guy out of his crypt and give him 12,000... 1200 words to just complain about romance novels. Now, real quick, there's music. Why is there music? I know we're coming out to the end, but do you think you've seen improvement? Real yes, quickly? it's better. It's the getting Times better. Romance now. Yay. <laughs> yes. Catch Jennifer, by the way, speaking <laughs> tomorrow with more time, Thursday, September 7th at Zlock Performing Arts Center, Bucks County Community College. The event is 6 30. Jennifer Weiner, thank you so much for yes, the time. Thank you, guys. This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. We are approaching hurricane season's peak. We've already seen the powerful Category 4 hurricane Adalia cause significant damage in northern Florida. And now the National Hurricane Center expects Tropical Storm Lee, currently brewing in the Atlantic, to become a major hurricane and intensify at a rapid pace this week. That doesn't mean that it will make landfall, but it has us thinking about the variety of tropical storms that we experience each year, some of the destruction they've caused over the decades, and if climate change could intensify things. Joining us now to talk about it is David Robinson, New Jersey State Climatologist at Rutgers University. Dave, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. Dave, I wanted to ask about the initial forecast for this hurricane season, which already seems to have been pretty dramatically updated. So what was the initial forecast? What did it look like and why has it changed? Yeah, the initial forecast was on the low end for activity this year because there is an El Nino event brewing uh, underway in the tropical Pacific. And that generally takes the legs out from any major tropical development in the Atlantic basin. So that was the initial look. But then as we got into summer, sea surface temperatures across the Atlantic basin, including the Atlantic, the Caribbean and the Gulf, got very warm, much warmer than normal. And that's the fuel for these storms. So we had two competing factors here. The El Nino don't want hurricanes. The warm sea surface temperatures want hurricanes. Thus, they raised the bar when it came to the activity expected this year. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, it has been active, but thus far only three hurricanes, two of them major, uh, but we're knocking on the doors you said with Lee becoming a hurricane probably today and a major hurricane by the end of this week. So the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is predicting there could be 21 named storms. I wanna discuss the level city storms. Where do they start? And at what level does a storm get named and then become a hurricane? Just give us some basics here. Yeah, great question. Uh, These storms start as waves of uh, disturbed weather out in the tropics. Then they'll get uh, some definition to them and become a tropical storm. And that's when they'll get a name. The winds are still below 40 miles an hour, um, sustained winds. But when they get above that, up to 40 miles an hour, they get named as a herc, uh, as a um, tropical storm, I should say. Up when they get to 74 miles an hour, they become a hurricane, and over 110, a major hurricane. So we have categories one through five with hurricanes. Idalia and Franklin were both threes, making them major hurricanes. Right now, the forecast has Lee by the weekend up to a four. Hmm. Yeah, give us the latest on Lee. Where is it tracking and how powerful do we think it will get before all is said and done? Uh, I've been just looking at the models that are coming out 
and they have it going north of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And then the question is, where will it start heading north? When will it veer north? And again, it's a battleground. You've got a ridge of high pressure over the Atlantic with its clockwise winds wanting to bring it up to the north and what we call a dip in the jet stream or a trough coming into eastern North America uh, this weekend and early next week, which has got cool things off here. Um, and, and it opens an alleyway, if you will, between mm. the winds coming up from the south around this trough and the winds coming up from the south around the high. The question is, where does that alley position itself, along the coast or offshore? Right now, the models are suggesting offshore and a near miss for eastern North America, except perhaps Newfoundland. But all bets are off still. We should not let our guard down. Yeah, I want to talk about climate change because I hear that and it makes me really nervous. Um, and I, I want to talk about climate change. It's getting warmer and warmer. I, I read an article uh, weeks ago that the coast of Florida clocked record-breaking ocean temperatures. How do these temperatures, you know, impact the hurricane season? And you touched on it. And how small of a difference does the temperature need to be to have a big impact? Yeah, it's been a remarkable year for sea surface temperatures, not just in the Atlantic Basin, but many other parts around the world. Really astounding to climatologists. Uh, just a couple degree increase in sea surface temperatures can make a big difference. Doesn't mean as much when you're talking about the atmosphere, but when you're talking oceans where temperatures are rather moderate, they're slow to warm, slow to cool, a couple degrees is a lot. And that's the fuel for these storms. They don't get fueled by cold air running into warm air like nor'easters do off our coast in the, in the winter. They percolate over warm ocean waters and that provides the fuel for these storms. And there's a lot of fuel out there this year. Yeah, so how does that work? Just give us maybe a little, a, a brief <laughs> uh, layman's yeah. biological breakdown. Warm water translating into energy to and storms. They have a lot of energy through evaporative processes. You get a disturbance, a little twist in the atmosphere above that area, and that helps to draw the, uh, the warm waters the warm evaporated waters nor, uh, up to higher altitudes. Mm. Uh, and if there's nothing coming in as you percolate up to rip that rising air apart, winds at different directions, it can go well up into the atmosphere and start getting a counterclockwise movement to it. So that's how you transfer it's through evaporative processes down at the surface of the ocean. And so what do you look at? You're a climatologist. What do you, what do you look at to determine, number one, whether or not um, a storm is going to become powerful and whether or not it, it could impact the region where you live, like all the way up here? Because we kind of view sometimes these hurricanes as being far away, but then every once in a while we get impacted here in the mid-Atlantic. Right. Yeah, that's the, the kind of the nexus between meteorology and climatology. Meteorology is the day-to-day, -day, and sometimes it ignores climatology. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, with climatology, you know what paths of storms, the timing of the year of the storms, the frequency and strength of the storms is more of a climatologic study. And so we look at this and say, well, we're getting into mid-September. This is the peak 
of the tropical season, the Atlantic Basin. So climatologically, you would expect storms out there. And climatologically, they do on occasion come up the East Coast. And then you merge that with a forecast and say, you know, there, there may be a lot of reliability behind this forecast based on climatology and the current weather forecast. So it's a really nice merger between weather uh, and climate. And then when you bring climate change into the picture, you know, that may skew things a little bit. Um, not necessarily towards more of these storms, but skewing it towards stronger storms. Greater intensity, not necessarily greater frequency. And Dave, just remind us real quick as, as we wrap up, we're getting toward peak hurricane season right now. When does it typically end? Well, officially it ends November 30th, but Mother Nature ignores the calendar sometimes. Mm, yeah. And then it really starts declining as you get into October. But there I remind you, 11 years ago, there was Sandy on October 29th. So yeah. we can't let our guard down till we get towards November. Um, but the peak will be in the next couple of weeks. In 30 seconds, any predictions? Oh, no, I stay away from that as climatologist. <laughs> I'll let the meteorologist handle that. But really, we're at the 12th named storm already. And we've got theoretically or, or climatologically half the season to go. That doesn't mean we're going to have 24 storms by the end. But I, I think we've got a fair chance of getting to the high end, to the upper teens, the low 20s in terms of the storms. I just hope they're they're weaker uh, than storms like Lee, Adelia, yeah. Franklin. That is Dave Robinson, New Jersey State Climatologist at Rutgers University. Thanks for joining us today on Studio 2, Dave. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps up our show. Avi, our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's show. For more Studio 2, you can head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate and review from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. Thanks for joining us. 